Hey, I'm Mike Bruce, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Founders Forward episode. I'm joined by, I believe, three-time guest now, Elizabeth Dean from the Hustle Fund. Uh, she's a co-founder of the Hustle Fund, a general partner there. Uh, she describes herself as a recovering entrepreneur and marketer. Uh, you might also know her as DunkHippo33 on Twitter. Uh, Elizabeth, I think you guys actually announced this earlier this year um, in February, but Fund2 has been, has been announced a little over $33 million. So first of all, uh, congrats on that and uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be back. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so, you know, today we're we're really framing season two all around helping founders get into the mindset of the investor to hopefully help them become more successful uh, with their fundraising efforts, whether it's, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, et cetera. Uh, and so just to help set the context for, for yourself and, and Hustle Fund, you know, you describe your, yourselves as investing hilariously early. So what does that mean? Like what, what stage are you guys investing at and, and, uh, and where, you're, where do you spend most of your time? Yeah, it, it's funny. The nomenclature is kind of all over the place. Like I call ourselves pre-seed investors, but pre-seed means a lot of different things to different people. So what do I mean by that? Uh, we generally invest uh, post-product, but pre-traction. Like we do not care if you already have customers or not. Obviously, after we invest, we would love for you to get customers, but um, we invest actually quite early. We're not looking for traction or anything like that. What about product? Yeah, and even product can be quite rough. Um, you know, we'd like teams to have done something. So mm -hmm. there's sort of this spread between when you thought of the idea and now you have a product and there's kind of everything in between. I think as long as you have something to show where you can say, hey, even if you're manually concierging the product, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Uh, we're gonna go off the rails here because uh, when we were doing our, our pre-chat, we were just talking about how people can't get enough of fundraising content. We would love to talk about customer acquisition. Let's just talk about customer acquisition just for a second. Um, and I'm putting you on the spot, so maybe we have to edit this out, hopefully not. But like, what are you seeing now? Because I mean, I think you guys were doing 12 deals per month uh, during COVID and maybe even more now, I'm not sure. But like, so you're, you're helping a lot of companies at this point. What is like the latest on early stage customer acquisition? Are there any trends or, or things you're seeing? Um, or is it kind of the tried and true, you know, customer acquisition funnels that, that have been, you know, here for a decade plus? Yeah. Well, I think number one, we are doing just a lot of deals. It's actually a little bit ridiculous. Uh, we are doing 12 to 15 deals a month right now. And that has been pretty sustained since last summer. I think we had a slight dip in, in the winter, but then it has picked up again more recently, the last three, four months. So awesome. it, it's been, it's been kind of nuts. And I think a big factor is actually, it's unrelated to COVID. It's unrelated to really anything that's going on in the world, but just the, the sophistication of entrepreneurs, I think is quite high relative to when I was starting my business. Mm -hmm. Mine, like, well, when I started my business, it was in the dark ages. It was pre lean startup. Like Eric Reese hadn't even come up with his book or, or whatever. And so I think that entrepreneurs generally are thinking about 
how to de-risk their businesses better now. And I think that's kind of what's led to this. And so what are people doing? They're doing things like pre-selling before they have a product. And, and this is kind of what I mean, like product can be rough, but we want to see that you are doing things and generally thinking about things in the right way. So very big proponent of the lean startup method, like for most software businesses, the biggest risk is that customers don't want this or they won't pay for it. And so mm -hmm. how can you de-risk that? What is the minimum that you need to do in order to start selling to prove that? So are you having the customer development calls that you need to? Do you have a good understanding of your customer persona? Have you had a lot of interviews? Um, have you tried to sell this product? Are people paying you even if the, the product's not there or if you're taking checks to your personal checking account or whatever it is? That's what we like to see. And those are the kinds of businesses we're funding at this stage. Okay. Uh, I think you talked, uh, I think you might have put this on Twitter this week, like when's the last time you talked to, to a customer uh, and, and tweeted that? Anything interesting come from that thread? I think a lot of people re responded that anything that you saw or was an interesting takeaway? Well, a lot of people responded that they are talking to their customers and some people said that they were reminded that they should. I mean, I think it, it's a good thing to always come back to even especially actually once you get going and you do have a product and now you have a team to manage and you have all these other things mm -hmm. and then things are not quite working as well as you had hoped. I mean, very often the question that I ask my portfolio founders in that scenario is, okay, you know, like somebody tells me, oh, people are churning. And then I ask them, did, you know, did you talk with the people who churned? and find out why. And, and actually, as, as funny as it sounds, actually very commonly people I don't think end up talking to their customers enough, like even just to ask a, a simple question, either because they're really busy or because there's a fear of what the answer would actually be. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott McCorkle, who, who's, a, who's a CTO of, of the exact target that got bought by, by Salesforce, he talked to a customer a day which I thought was pretty interesting. Like that was his thing. Even if it was the same customer, like he might call up, you know, someone, um, you know, two times in the month or whatever, but he would literally talk to a customer a day. And that was his goal. I tried to do that. It's actually a lot harder than it sounds to talk to a customer a day. Uh, but we literally are, are going through a lot of customer development for a new feature we're considering right now. Our goal was uh, 30 customer interviews uh, in the next uh, two weeks. And that's like, that's actually a lot of work too. But one of the things just to, go back to talking to customers is you also are reminded of things that like work really well too. Maybe things that, yes, it's great to hear where things suck. Uh, but then like today I was reminded someone's like, Hey, I love reading the visible weekly. Like it's so great. Uh, I get so much value from that occur than other newsletters. And I, I shot a quick note to the marketing team. Like, thank you. And sure was, you know, this is awesome. But sometimes you like, you also forget like what got you to where you were and like what works well. So um, it's, it's fun, like getting back into the weeds and doing a lot of calls back to back with, with customers. So. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's amazing that you're doing that because to your point, actually, once you get going, I think that it is really hard to talk to customers because you have so many other responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people think, Oh, just talking with customers at the earliest stages is sort of one and done, but it's a, it's a continuous process. And to your point, Mike, I think, learning what actually people love can be great in, in other ways too, where you can actually choose to double down and hone in on mm -hmm. that specific thing. And the other thing you learn is the messaging that your customers are using to better convert your customers as well. Like what is the language they're using? They may be calling it something completely different, which is actually very common, even if you don't change anything about the product at all.
Yes, that's so true. It's like, what do I call this feature? And we, you know, bang our heads against the wall of like copy. And it's like, oh, we'll just talk to customers and hear how they describe it. And then usually a trend merges like, oh yeah, duh. Like we should have just done that the entire time. <laughs> uh, and then, then one other quick little anecdote that I thought was pretty interesting is uh, we have like a fundraising, a very light fundraising CRM founders can use now to manage a fundraising process. And when we scope the feature, in the MVP, I was like, we don't need multiple pipelines. Like you're only raising one round at a time. Like we don't need to support multiple pipelines in MVP. Uh, and, and we haven't since we launched the feature like a year ago. But we, through these customer calls, you know, we heard like three in a row where they're like, I really wish I could do multiple pipelines. I'm really having to hack my way around it because I kind of have like a scenario A and B, like here's my angel kind of path. And here's if I do like institutional route. Um, some people just want to archive or save a board. So like, we learned things that like I thought were obvious, uh, but just heard them so many times that when you talk to customers, like trends certainly emerge. So it's been fun, like getting back into that. Um, Cause yeah, admittedly probably didn't do it enough uh, earlier this year. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I like that. Uh, but okay. At least we talked to some customer acquisition marketing. So I'm, I'm glad we did that. But today, you know, want to talk, pivot back to uh, founders raising a pre-seed seed round. Um, you guys launched Angel Squad, uh, and it's pretty cool to see what's happening. Like, it's kind of like on deck where you start to see on Twitter, people are putting like, a, they're like an Angel Squad member, and it's like a badge of honor that they're wearing, which is which is cool to see. Um, so I guess, you know, quickly, like, what is Angel Squad? And maybe more importantly, like, why was now the right time to, to launch something like this uh, as part of Hustle Fund? Yeah, so Angel Squad is a new initiative that we launched at Hustle Fund <laughs> I don't know, um, less than a month ago, I think now. And essentially what it is, is it's, uh, I guess you could call it a modern day angel club or angel group. So if you can imagine the, the older version of an angel group is a bunch of rich people get together and there's some social gatherings and then they look at deals and founders pitch them and maybe they invest and, and then they kind of teach each other how to angel invest. And that's kind of the concept. Well, if you could imagine like, what would that look like as a sort of a version 2.0, that's essentially what Angel Squad is. Uh, we provide education on how to invest in startups, at least from the perspective of Hustle Fund. And uh, we you know, certainly like to cultivate the community as well. It is entirely online. So we're talking about a global community. And, and then um, you know, lastly, of course, we do share deals. Certainly it's a way for angels to invest alongside us at Hustle Fund. But also the squad members are starting to bring their own deals as well and invest in each other's companies that they're bringing. And I think that's the ultimate goal, which is, you know, I think for Hustle Fund taking a step back, our mission is to help with essentially three things for startup ecosystems, um, capital, networks, and knowledge. I think those are three things that are really critical for an entrepreneur to be successful. And you see those three things in certain circles or in certain geographies. Certainly, I think San Francisco does this better than many other places in the world, but there's talent everywhere. And so those three things are not distributed evenly. And so we're trying to kind of further all three. And Angel Squad is an initiative that um, helps provide more capital. I mean, I think we certainly have our VC fund, which does that, but there's only a limit to the number of companies we can fund. But in theory, actually, if we can bring in thousands of new angels or tens of thousands of new angels, then you can actually broaden the scope of, of capital. And they, of course, are very influential in bringing their friends to the table as well. 
how's that, how's it going to work from a uh, like a deal perspective? You guys share a deal. Hey, we just invested. We're super excited. Are you going to create like an SPV that's managed by by Hustle Fund, or or what do the dynamics look like for like when the rubber meets the road? I'm not sure if you guys are even can share that or not, but I was just just curious. Oh yeah, we're an open book. So we have been doing deals through Angel Squad already. Uh, we we aim for about two to three a month. So not quite one a week, but we think that's sort of a reasonable pace, at least for right now. And uh, the way it looks like is it, it is an SPV that we run, at least for the companies that we are bringing to the table, which are existing hustle fund portfolio companies. And uh, we are also, you know, putting in another check as well. So we have skin in the game. I think that's something that's really important. Certainly you see a lot of platforms where people can invest, but there's always this question of how much skin in the game mm -hmm. do, the, do the sourcers have. So we do have skin in the game and then uh, angels can invest alongside us in these SPVs. And then some of the, some of the deals that are coming to the table that are not hustle fund portfolio companies um, initially they have been sourced by us as angels and we have skin in the game as angels. Um, okay. But the newer ones from the squad, similarly, you know, they are, um, you know, they're sourcing and they have skin in the game and also uh, shared economics on the SPVs as well. So if I wanted to map, so if I couldn't be an LP in hustle fund for whatever reason, right, there's a limited number of investors you could have in fund two and all of these other dynamics. Uh, I could join angel squad and almost map your portfolio if I just participated in, in every deal, theoretically? Uh, unfortunately not. So, <laughs> no. um, unfortunately not. So we, we do bring forth, uh, you know, deals that are, are great. As a result, actually, as I mentioned, we are investing again at the same time that the Angel Squad members are. So there is, you know, strong signal there, but we don't bring every company uh, to Angel Squad. Okay. Yeah, that, that unfortunately is just impossible as you can yeah. imagine because some companies are just way oversubscribed or whatever. Yeah, uh, modern, name, modern day angel group, I love that. Uh, like when I, when I think of angel groups, when I was uh, just starting out, you would go and they'd be like, yeah, hey, I'm raising your round, like great, um, come meet us in 60 days yeah. <laughs> at, 7, at 7 p.m. and you'll compete against three other companies in pitch. We'll grill you with questions and then you won't hear from us for another 30 days. I was like, well, that timing really doesn't work. So I'm glad that uh, you guys are taking a more modern approach to like map how it actually, like fundraising actually works, this uh, which is great. Fast, because I totally hear you from personal experience, angel groups in general, uh, tend to move very slowly. Um, but we, I mean, much like the fund, uh, this group can usually turn around and answer anywhere, anywhere between 48 hours and a week. Um, it obviously kind of depends on the deal, but we do set expectations very clearly with every company, like how much we think we can deliver and, and then whether we hit that or not, we can give them a quick answer in 48 hours for yeah. the most part. Love it. Some of the things that you've been talking about on, on Twitter, it seems like more recently are small checks um like you know not the standard twenty five thousand fifty thousand dollar angel checks but smaller ones uh and we t and i think yesterday you posted uh some pretty interesting things around supply and demand uh and so you know fundraising tends to be a supply and demand game requires you know fomo uh kind of going on the theme of, of small checks how does this like how does a, a small check cater 
to turning into like larger checks or, or, or larger fundraise? Yeah, so one of our portfolio companies called Fresh Paint, the founder wrote about his fundraising experience. And funny enough, one of his small check writers actually introduced him to so many different investors, funds and angels that he ended up raising the, the bulk of his round through that one person. Um, so small checks can really deliver credibility, social proof um, to bringing in more money, which I think is something that is often overlooked. Mm -hmm. um, and we certainly have found that to be true with Hustle Fund as well. Like when we were raising Hustle Fund, some of our smallest check writers, uh, you know, $10,000 or $25,000 helped us get introductions to much larger checks. So I really do believe in the power of small checks. Like I think you have to look beyond that small check. And so then the question is, well, and since most people don't actually see the value of a small check, at least at this point in time, how do you as a small check writer then kind of convince somebody of this? And, and I think this is where ultimately it is a sales game. You might have to sell your check a little bit more than a larger check writer, but it's, it's definitely possible. Like as an angel, I have written $1,000 checks and I'm not even talking about SPVs. I'm talking about direct. And, mm -hmm. and it, you really are selling like, you know, I, I will not be in your hair. I will make, make fast decisions. You know, I can help you potentially introduce you to people or whatever. And you're, you're selling that. What if, uh, one of the things that, you know, I saw online that I started is like, man, I would love to help other founders is, uh, I guess I should put the caveat. This is like not talk to a lawyer or, uh, your, your accountant, but, uh, a lot of founders can actually support other founders through the equity in their business, right? If you have a, a certain uh, valuation and you have a certain ownership, you probably count as an accredited individual already. Um, have you seen anything interesting with like founders coming together to support other founders through through smaller checks? Definitely. And so this is exactly the, the perfect use case of, because people often wonder, well, if you're really an angel investor and you're rich, why are you writing small checks? And I think when you think about the people who are accredited, uh, but don't have a lot of liquidity, they do tend to yeah. be startup founders or, or people heavily invested in startups of some sort, right? So so this is the perfect use case. Um, I'm no lawyer also, so I can't speak to the accreditation laws. And I think they are honestly a bit fuzzy, but this is actually how a lot of people, at least out here in Silicon Valley are running around and writing, you know, $1,000, $5,000 checks. Like they are accredited on paper through, you know, their startups valuation. Let's say it's, you know, they've raised money at 10 mil post or whatever. There you go. Like you're easily accredited, but you may not have a lot of cash. But it's very actually helpful because I would love to have entrepreneurs in my round and, and mm -hmm. actually even for our, our fund at Hustle Fund, again, like going back to how we do have small check writers in, in both our funds one and funds two, they are largely entrepreneurs. They're very well connected. They know other investors. They have their investors or they know other entrepreneurs. And, you know, this is the network you want, right? And as a founder as well, um, you know, you often want introductions to other VCs or whatever who better to introduce you than somebody who's already in the portfolio? It's becoming uh, super prevalent. Even, I mean, uh, Angelus has a whole product related to even helping have, you know, if I'm a founder and I just want a, a consortium of more founders that have like the roll-up vehicles now that make it super easy for you to, to like take a bunch of small checks. You have one line on the cap table. Uh, so you don't have to manage like a ton of, you know, uh, cap table messiness. And you're able to bring on all of those founders running your cap table. So I'm, I'm loving 
some of the innovation that's happening there. There's a lot of companies that are now spinning up to even let you create, you know, SPVs at at scale for a fraction of the cost of what it used to. You got Angel Squad, so I think it's going to be uh, just a, a trend that's going to stick for a long, long time. I mean, you're even seeing it at, like in the biggest rounds, right? I think Front, uh, I think their most recent round was like all. Uh, now it was a big round. It was like 60 million plus. And so it was from highly liquid, very wealthy founders, but like successful founders led that round, which I thought was, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, a hundred percent. Notion also did a round, I think maybe not the latest one, but the the one prior or something. And I, I believe it was like a $10 million round all with operators. So uh, I think you're going to see VCs be rivaled by a lot of these operator angels. So, so they're small check writers for sure. But then some of these people are also large check writers too. And then you get sort of the party round of both. So that way, you know, you can bring a lot of really valuable people to the table. And I, I really do think that that's the dream. I mean, certainly the dream for, for us, like with our fund. And I think, you know, yesterday, Ryan Hoover announced for weekend fund that he had raised a, a fund three and largely from, I forgot, hundreds of, you know, entrepreneurs and, and angel investors and, and that's what he's trying to do because mm -hmm. he wants these people to bring deals. He wants them to help out his portfolio companies. You know, he wants some of them to start companies, et cetera. And I think that's super smart. How any best practices, like if, you know, this is, if this becomes more prevalent, I have hundreds call it, of, of people now on my cap table. What, what talk to me about maybe best practice about managing that, managing expectations of those individuals. And then, should I still find someone that maybe has a lot of uh, significant skin in the game, right? Because if I need a bridge or I'm, I really need help with something, like, are those 100 people going to help out and be able to move the needle for me? Or should I still think about having, like, someone that has a majority uh, of, of the round covered for me? Yeah, I think this is where there are philosophical differences for sure. Um, you know, I think the party round can be great because you can craft it such that you, you really can optimize for network or optimize for a variety of skill sets or whatever it is, or, or both. Um, but, you know, there is also value in having a lead. I, I think a lot of people make the argument of the skin in the game thing. I would argue that actually all these angels have pretty good skin in the game, mm -hmm. but they, despite that though, they may not have time because it's not their day job. And so even if they really do care about their money in your startup, um, they care a lot about their day job because, you know, they've, they've got other priorities. So, so I think having a big lead where it is their day job to invest large amounts of money and you're one of the few in their portfolio, I think that that is a different dynamic. And if you find that right fit, those people can actually help you more just simply because they have the time and bandwidth and it's their, their profession to do so. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that, um, you know, what a lot of people ideally want is kind of both, you know, maybe half the round is from some lead and then you, you fill the rest with some of these helpful folks, but not everyone necessarily has that choice either. And, and sure. so, you know, there you go. Um, kind of uh, uh, a maybe a more practical uh, example or question. I think you wrote, let's say you're raising a million dollars. Uh, and if you go to investors and you say you're raising a million dollars, most of them aren't going to commit now. Um, you know, it's better for them to wait. But why? Why is that happening? Or why would it? Why is it better for an investor to wait? Yeah, I, I guess if you just put yourself in the shoes of an investor, and I don't, I don't think this is quite game theory, but we can call it that. Like from a game theory perspective, um, 
you know, like it, let's say you have a decision tree and you have, you can decide to invest or not invest. Uh, well, you can, you know that you can probably get in at the same terms a, a few months from now. So you should always wait, right? Because you can learn more information at the next decision tree point. And so that's why people do that. And so as such, like you as the entrepreneur have to kind of put pressure on investors to essentially make them think that maybe there isn't that next decision point mm -hmm. and that maybe this is it. And that really is what fundraising is all about. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize that. I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, it's about whether investors like my company or not. No, it's, it's about whether investors feel like they will have another shot at this at the same terms. Yep. And one of the more, uh, I think, brilliant things that you've, you've written about quite a bit, and, and maybe we've talked about before, but I, I would love to cover it again. Let's talk about the, the, the tranche strategy that you've laid out. Because I think we talk to a lot of founders and you hear it, it's like, I'm having a hard time finding a lead. It's taking long enough off to raise. What is the tranche strategy? How does it work uh, to, to create some of that FOMO, you, you know, so you don't get the next decision point in the tree? Um, and, and, and maybe wrap that thought with like, are there any downsides uh, associated with maybe going with, with this tranche strategy? Yeah, the tranche strategy, I love it personally because it takes care of a lot of problems. So one problem that it addresses is what we're talking about now, which is um, it, it removes that second decision-making point. Um, it really forces an investor's hand now. But the second thing that it also helps with is around valuation setting. So let's dig into both of those. So for valuation setting, I think one of the challenges for most entrepreneurs is, you know, people often ask like, well, what valuation should I be raising at? And I think the honest answer is nobody really knows because valuation is a factor of supply and demand, like supply of your round and demand of investors. And you don't know what the demand of your invest of potential investors mm -hmm. is. So, so there's, there's this problem of, you don't want to, you don't want to set a valuation that's too low and dilute yourself unnecessarily, but you also don't want to set it too high to scare everybody off. And you may not have a second chance with those investors again. So then what do you do? And and that I think is a problem. So the tranche strategy basically allows you to test the waters on a valuation and understand where you stand in the market. So if you take like a million dollar raise and let's say we, we carve it up into a couple of different raises, essentially a raise of let's say 300,000 and then later a raise of 700,000, you can test with the smaller tranche your valuation you know, go to angels and say, Hey, I'm raising on a safe at whatever, 4 million post money valuation. And if nobody bites, you have a problem. Either you've set the valuation too high or, or there's something else that's fundamentally wrong here. Uh, people don't want to invest in your business. And so that's a signal to you that you probably need to figure that out and, and fix that. If it turns out that like your 300,000 is oversubscribed and everybody wants in, you probably did set it a little low. And that's probably a signal that you can raise it for the 700,000. So maybe you're a bit more diluted than you would have liked to have been, but it's just on the 300,000, which is not bad. So, so that's one thing that it solves for. And then going back to the question of how do you remove decision points for investors and create FOMO, by splitting up a larger round into these two tranches, 300,000 reduces the supply effectively. And so then investors feel like, well, I have to make a decision on this tranche with special terms. 
otherwise the price will go up. And so if I'm really interested, I'm going to invest now. Um, but if I'm not really that interested, I'm, I'm going to just not do this. And so that forces everyone to move a little bit faster than they normally would. So those are the two things it solves for. I think in terms of the downsides, the biggest downside is in the communication of it. I've seen mm -hmm. uh, founders really mess this up where it's, you know, they go to an investor and say, hey, I'm raising at 4 million post money. Let's say that tranche gets oversubscribed and then that investor hadn't yet responded. And, and the founder goes back to that investor and says, oh, oh, you're in? Well, actually that, that price is gone now. It's now 10 million post. And how do you think that makes an investor feel? Like, it, like emotionally, it doesn't feel good. And so with this tranche strategy, you have to over communicate. If you're getting close to filling your tranche, you should be emailing everybody you told about the special number. Like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I only have 50,000 left. And after that, you know, I'm sorry, that's all I can, you know, that's what I can do. So, so really over communicating everything. Um, you can't change things on people because they will not feel good. Mm -hmm. Super, super helpful. I think that's a great takeaway. Um, is it fair to say you don't need a lead for the tranche strategy? Like you as a founder can kind of set the terms of, of the safe and, and close money as it rolls in and, and you can remove some of your heartburn there, like not necessarily needing to find a, a lead because you can do it yourself. Yeah. So with the tranche strategy, you can go and set the terms. Now, with the tranche strategy, you can also fundraise from potential lead investors in parallel, but the framing is slightly different because lead investors want to set their own terms. So I think the framing with when you go to a meeting with a lead investor or a potential lead investor, you, you essentially say, hey, um, we're raising a million dollars. And uh, while we are open to leads uh, who are a good fit and, and considering those terms, we are also in parallel not holding our fundraising back. We are, we are raising on a note right now, um, but you know we are we are also open to a price round. So that's kind of how you do both. And then what ends up happening is if a lead does come in and says, "Oh yeah, actually I want to just you know fund the whole thing," but you've already started collecting notes or safes, that's fine. You know you end up just converting your notes or safes into the round at that price. Uh, amount and everyone's actually generally pretty happy with that. Yeah, there you go. Super tactical. I love it. Um, let's go on to like the the C to Series A because uh, I think you mentioned it requires a more buttoned up approach. You know, belt plus suspenders. Uh, how should founders think about like the Series A? And, and maybe let's start with metrics first. Like, what does my business need to look like? Um, for me to have a, a successful Series A raise. So, Mike, we're doing this in 2021, where the market is just <laughs> insane, and I feel like I don't have a great answer anymore. I yeah. think uh, a year and a half ago, I would have said that for the Series A, for most companies, you should probably be looking at at least a million dollar run rate. I think if you're extra good at fundraising and are in a hot space, you don't have to have quite those metrics. And if you are not good at that or, and you're not in a hot space, you should probably have above that, probably closer to 2 million run rate. That's probably what I would have said. However, I think in this market, I'm just seeing everything, like literally everything, where that still holds for many companies. But in this market, I think there, there's a select few 
companies that are just being thrown money left and right. And it generally is along the lines of because of either who the team is or because of how hot the sector is, in which case I'm seeing companies that have near nothing uh, raise Series A's. The other thing is the valuations on the Series A's are all over the board. I think a year and a half ago, I would have said Series A's are anywhere from 20 million pre-money up. But now I would say that uh, that would be a low end of a Series A. Some of these really hot Series A's are like 100 million pre and up. I'm not asking you to, to predict, but I guess I will. Um, so like, how does this, maybe game through this, like how does this play out for founders that are doing this uh, 18, 24, you know, 36 months from now? Um, raise the Series A at a 70 or $100 million valuation with, you know, less than a million dollars in, in revenue. Like what does that mean for me as a founder and how should I think about this? Yeah, so on one hand, it's great if you can get phenomenal terms, but I would also be cautious because you have to um, you have to hit the milestones of the next stage. And if you're not anywhere close to that because you were able to raise a Series A pretty early on, then that's going to be that's going to be tough, right? Because Series B milestones, I would say, a year and a half ago, it would have been closer to 10 million run rate. Um, anywhere between five to 10 million run rate. These days, I would say that's all over the board as well, but maybe in two years, it'll be back to that. And so if you're basically at nothing and now you're trying to get to 10 million run rate, that's a really tall order. Mm -hmm. So I would say that it's, it's really important to be cash efficient. And that can be hard if you have a board that's putting a lot of pressure on you to just spend money in a span of 18 to 24 months uh, when you don't yet have product market fit. I think for companies that do have product market fit, where they have a repeatable process, they know the value proposition, why people buy, and it's just a matter of executing on it, and it turns out that you get a preemptive Series A, then that's probably an okay situation. But if you have no product market fit and you're still trying to figure all of that out, I'd be very conservative in how you spend your money because I think you'll need to make your money last like just a lot longer. And that also means setting expectations with your board that you're not gonna burn until you figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. These questions might also like, hey, the time is, you know, it's, it's way different now, but, um, you know, how, how does my Series A deck or, or, or content differ from maybe my seed round? Uh, and then maybe a second follow-up question to that is like, do you think founders need a pitch deck even for a pre-seed or, or seed round? Like, have you guys done deals with, without those things? Founders don't need to pitch with a deck, but I would recommend at a minimum preparing a five-slide deck. It can be really rough problem, mm -hmm. solution, team, uh, you know, market or traction or whatever, something along those lines, just so that way, a lot of investors will ask like, you know, hey, what is the basic information on this company that I, I want to review before taking a meeting? So just being able to send that out, I think will save you a lot of time. And, and then you can just totally have a conversation uh, during a call instead of pitching off of a deck. So that's totally fine. It's been like that forever at seed, whether it's pre-seed, seed, post-seed, seed, post it's pretty informal, however you want to do it. I think the way that I would go into this setting expectations with the investors, you know, hey, is it is it cool to just have a conversation about the business? And, and again, just over communicating everything. Like mm -hmm. if you're pitching like, hey, I, I prepared a, a deck, okay to walk through it or, you know, hey, is it cool to just have a conversation? So, that, so that's what I would do. 
But series A is a lot more buttoned up. Series A, you know, you really should spend time on the story and the deck. You should have appendix slides for a lot of the details. And I think especially if we are thinking about series A's, traditional series A's, where you actually have numbers to show, like the more you can do around your metrics and the details around your customers, the better. Like, you know, what are the, the case studies on the customers? Do you have enough data to do even cohort analysis? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you should know your CAC and your LTV. Obviously these things will change, but the expectation is you will have a much stronger idea of how your business works at that stage down to the nitty gritty. And that should certainly go in the deck at a minimum. And then even more extensively preparing a deal room with, with some of these other things, whether it's, you know, customer testimonials or whatever else, like will strengthen your case. I would say this market again is pretty wonky where I'm seeing a lot of series <laughs> deals happen without really anything, but yeah. I would say that's, that's not a, my prediction is it will revert to some level of normalcy where that will not happen forever. Yeah. For, for founders, I think we tend to maybe under index on how much time fundraising takes. Um, and maybe going to some of our, you know, putting our marketing hats on, given like, benchmarks or conversion data on how many founders, how many investors a founder should think through or talk to, take a meeting with, close, let's call it for a seed round, like my first maybe institutional round, like how should I think about maybe how much time it's going to take me and like how many meetings and, and do I actually need to set to kind of get that funnel down to like one term sheet, ideally, hopefully more, like any, any good data there? Yeah. So uh, it, fundraising just takes a, a lot of meetings. And I would say, let's say that an um, old version of a seed round, half a million to a million dollars, I think people should be prepared to take anywhere between 100 and 200 investor meetings. And this includes small angels as well as larger mm -hmm. funds. But that's the level that I think people need to be prepared for. Now, I think you will have your answer as you go along. Like, let's say that you've done, I don't know, 30 meetings and you're not close with anybody, maybe you stop. Mm -hmm. But I think I often hear founders say, oh, nobody is committing. And well, how many people did you meet with? Eight. Like that, yeah. that's not going to cut it because part of it is you need to have a lot of meetings to meet with the right people. I think one of the challenges, which honestly I can see it as a big frustration with my founders is you don't really know what investors like. Everybody has some generic website of, oh, I invested in software and we invest in everything. Well, what does that really mean? Like, what are you actually, what are you mm -hmm. actually interested in? And the reason everyone has a general website is they don't want to miss anything, but it's also not helpful in guidance. So um, you'll have to meet a lot of people to understand like who really is a good fit. And then the other thing is you'll probably end up changing your story along the way. And that doesn't mean change your business, but as you hear concerns or things you need to address better, you'll want to shape your own messaging in your pitch. And so your pitch will hopefully get better over time as well. So you're going to probably burn through a lot of meetings and uh, it would not surprise me if people burn through, you know, 10 or 20 meetings before kind of starting to hit their stride. So that's why it's important to do a lot of meetings. Do you think it's important to maybe put your call it unqualified or maybe not as qualified investors early on to burn through that for practice? Or should I put my top tier ones early on in, in terms of my, my fundraising strategy? Yeah, everybody has a different tactic here. <laughs> I'm not really sure what the best yeah. strategy is. 
Eric, my business partner, likes to recommend uh, that people put sort of their second tier investors first. So they're, they're, you know, great people, but they're not your top picks and, and get your story figured out with them first before going to your top tier. But I think, um, I don't know, it, it's really hard to say. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay, we're gonna wrap up three questions that uh, we've been asking all of our investor guests this season, and, and hopefully we can create some super actionable things for founders. Um, what catches your eye in a cold email from a founder? Definitely has to be concise as a as a starting point. Um, and then in that brief, you know, copy that you have, essentially it's it's just hitting the punches, like you know. Building rapport, so it's a little bit personalized. I understand you're probably still mass emailing this to everybody, but at least you got my name right, hopefully, <laughs> and, yeah. and and got something a little bit right about why I might be interested. And then, uh, you know, a couple of talking points about what is great about your company. Maybe it's you landed a couple of key pilots. Maybe it's you have ten years of domain experience in this and found this problem, or or maybe it's you actually have. I don't know, something notable about whatever. And so, and then lastly, strong call to action, you know, uh, making it very clear that you're looking to pitch, you know, like what, what is the best way to get your thoughts on, on our fundraise um, or something? Yeah. What's the number one thing founders can do to help speed up their funding process? I think it really comes down to just packing meetings together to create that FOMO. Um, spreading out the meetings just, just, just drags on the process. And finally, if the founder thinks they're a good fit for hustle fund, uh, any tips for increasing, like, how does your process work? You guys are doing, you know, 15, 16 deals a month. Like how do I get in touch with you and and be one of those 16 companies? Yeah. So everybody goes through the same process. You know, even if you were referred in my, by my best friend or you're totally just cold, completely cold. Everybody fills out the form on our website as a starting point. In fact, people who are warm intro to me or people who know me, I ask them to fill that out because we want the same information for every company to be able to, you know, look objectively at the same thing. So, so that's the starting point. Now where we can do better. And I've been literally saying this for years now, we haven't quite solved this is we have a lot of applications and we are so behind always on that. It's something we are working on, but that can take a while. It can take us a while to get back to people. So if here's like a key tip, and I'm a little bit hesitant to give out this key tip. After you fill that out, if you, if you cold email us or, or you ping somebody to ping us, that will usually encourage us or push us to look in, in the pipe drive that in our CRM uh, at your application sooner. So while we have the same standard process for everybody, like where you are in the queue, I think people who do hustle for lack of a better word, um, end up getting a response faster. There you go. Uh, Elizabeth, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day, uh, joining us and, and sharing some of these thoughts and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike.